Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host, Jason Hammond. Hey, Todd. How's it going? Pretty good. Another day uh, digitally separated, but still producing a, a podcast, so taking it a day at a time. Yeah, so I guess the, the usual disclaimer of sorry if there's any technical issues or if the voice cuts out at all or anything, but I think we've got it pretty close to nailed down at this point. Uh, Todd, today we're going to talk about explosive power or you know, potentially the benefits of explosive strength training for cycling. We're going to start with maybe what inspired this topic and then jump into a little bit of what explosive power is. And then we have a few studies of endurance athletes who benefited from uh, doing explosive power. And then we're going to talk about some exercises that you could do to integrate explosive power training into your workload. So we talked a lot about strength training before. So this is something that's uh, maybe parallel to the traditional strength training paradigms that we've discussed? Yeah. So some studies will say do explosive training and don't do heavy training. So traditional strength training is something like heavy training. So you would do it's heavy training is 70 to 120% of one rep max in some capacity. And explosive training is actually at a lower one rep max percent. So 50 to 70% is the recommended weight. Um, and we'll talk about this more in the exercise specific stuff. But there are some people who say do heavy training. There are some people who say do explosive training. And there are actually a lot of people who say you should be doing some heavy training and some explosive training. And hopefully we can look at some of the benefits of each. So uh, what sort of ex inspired this topic is um, there are a couple papers on uh, comparing heavy load training versus explosive training. And um, just to sort of summarize those papers, uh, heavy load training, for example, three sets of five, you know, one rep max squats or, you know, 90% one rep max and uh, versus explosive training, which would be something like box jumps or other uh, efforts that are explosive in nature or uh, another term used is a, a ballistic exercise. So heavy load training caused an increase in total strength or maximum strength of 26.8%, whereas explosive training was only 10.8%. So you got 15% more strength out of heavy load training, but actually the activation time, which is the time for the muscle to start contracting, it actually increased for the maximal force for the heavy load training. Um, essentially, it took longer for the muscles to fire or to start firing when heavy load training occurred. Whereas for explosive training, the the activation time decreased. So uh, for heavy load training, the activation time increased by 20%. So it was 20, took 20% 20 longer for the muscles to start firing. Whereas explosive training, the activation time decreased by 24%. So you actually saw the muscles firing faster. And then the other uh, added value of explosive training was that the deactivation, so when the muscles stop firing, this improved by 10%. So they deactivated 10% faster. Whereas for heavy load training, they actually decreased in, they stopped activating 48% slower. One big issue with heavy load training was that the deactivation of the muscles took a lot longer. And, and it was just sort of because if you think about, say, like a deadlifter, if you look, if you watched, um, who was the one uh, weightlifter who deadlifted 500 kilograms? Oh, the guy from Game of Thrones, The Mountain, right? Yeah. Um, so he, it's a very slow effort. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a solid five, 10 seconds. And 
Uh, there, there's no demand on the muscles deactivating you. You pull the, the bar up and you stand there and you wait for the judge to say, you know, good lift. So you're not really training this activation and deactivation when you do heavy load training, but when you do explosive training, these values start to improve. Sort of on this idea, who cares about activation and deactivation? And there's actually a paper, which is an optimization study. So it was a, a model of a human body, and they looked at the motor pattern of specifically sprint cycling. And they input the values from these uh, two, two papers. They compared sort of the optimized power production of the models based on their characteristics, based on the characteristics in these papers. And they found that uh, for heavy load training, the optimal cadence was about 90. And for explosive training, the optimal cadence was about 120. In both cases, the power production was about the same. I think it was you know, 1% off or 2% off. But the emphasis was that the cadence varied the optimal cadence varied based on doing explosive training or heavy training. And the conclusion was, are there certain sports or certain activities where explosive training is more advantageous, um, specifically looking at endurance sports such as swimming, running, cycling, cross-country skiing. Some of these events have higher cadence, some of these events have a lower cadence, and they believe uh, some of the events where there's a higher cadence, explosive training is actually more beneficial than heavy load training. So this study was sort of the motivation of, okay, our cyclists, I mean, sprint cycling, it's advantageous to have explosive power training. It's not different in terms of the total power production, but allows you to have a higher cadence. And we know a lot of sprinters, especially professional sprinters, they actually run out of gears in you know they're in their 5311 and they don't have enough gears they have to work on improving their cadence to get more power and so this for them would be you know obviously they have to do plenty of explosive training um, but for a more amateur cyclist or for a cyclist who's not specifically a sprinter can we see benefits in explosive training sort of the prompt of the episode i have so many questions about the first study you 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 or they may or may not have tried to answer this because that may not have been their intent said, okay, well, if I do heavy strength training, I get, relatively speaking, 15% more strength. But for my muscle activation, it becomes you know 20% slower versus 20, 24% faster with the um, explosive training. So I guess what I'm thinking about is, you know, where's, where's the crossover point in terms of, you know, from baseline to get to some increased force value? You know what I'm saying, right? Like, Let's say, well, with my explosive, you know, I get there faster to my 15% gain, but, and it takes me longer to get to my 26% gain, but how much faster do I get to my 15%? Do I get to 15% with explosive training versus 15% with heavy training, if that makes sense? Yeah. So what's interesting is that the sprint power for both heavy training and explosive training was the same. So you would assume that some hybrid of the two would also be the same total power. It's sort of how is this accomplished? Is it accomplished by, um, you know, having just more force production, or is it accomplished by, um, you know, some, you know, your your muscles are firing better, or or their activation time decreases? One thing to note that may help you answer this question is that the model showed that the heavy load training had significant negative force on the backside of the pedal stroke. Essentially, the quads and the glutes continued to fire as it scooped through six and seven o'clock 
because the deactivation time had decreased or increased so much. It would be great to have the amount of strength that the, the heavy load training had, but it would also be great not to have that you know, extra deactivation time. So maybe there is some balance point where you can have a smooth pedal stroke, but you can have more total strength. And maybe there is some optimization between the two. Well, it sounds like what you pointed out with the pro riders typically being at really high cadences and maybe being out of gears when they're sprinting. For them, it sounds like the power or the explosive training makes sense because they really need that fast activation and cadence may be the limiting factor. Um, for an amateur rider, if absolute force may be a limiting factor versus cadence. And this may be one of these things where it's what's your, what's your limiter is the question that we have to answer before we figure out what makes sense in terms of training for you. Sure. And so we'll talk about that a little bit as we uh, move through the episode. First, I want to talk about sort of what explosive power is in the literature. And if you're, so I worked with an Olympic, Olympic lifting coach in college in the off season for track cycling. We did some explosive power with him. And more recently, I've been doing a lot of lifting with cycling coaches, and I noticed a lot less explosive power work. Let's go into what sort of a, a weightlifter would say. Um, explosive power in the literature says it's it's focusing on the contractions in the window of 50 to 250 milliseconds. So the best example of this is the vertical jump. A vertical jump is there's about a quarter of a second between the start of the muscle contraction. So when you're at the bottom, uh, if you imagine, you know, you're standing, you drop, and then you launch upward. From the bottom to the leaving the ground is the only time you have to produce power. So, because once you're in the air, obviously you have nothing to push against. So this effort is usually about a quarter of a second. And if you look at uh, force plate data, so they'll have someone jump and they'll have a plate underneath of them that measures the amount of force that's being put into it. Um, you'll see a sort of bell curve or you know, an upside down quadratic curve. And essentially when we do explosive training, the, the area under the curve increases by moving uh, sort of outward. So the term is rate of force development, but essentially the, the slope of the force production curve gets sharper. So you reach a, a maximum force production sooner in that quarter of a second. And, but then if you're saying it gets wider, you're also implying that you maintain that peak. I mean, it's a quarter of a second, but you're maintaining that peak force for longer as well. So more, more work is done. Yeah. Power is the area under the force curve. So mm -hmm. if you increase the slope at the beginning of the curve, the total area does increase. You end up getting more power. But if you look at the curves themselves, the, the power can be accounted for in the increase in the initial force and the increase in the rate of maximum force production. So if you, if you overlay the curves, you see the change at the beginning of the, the power phase. So I guess how does this apply to cycling is um, if we think about at 90 cadence, each pedal stroke is two thirds of a second. And if you look at uh, pedal stroke analysis, you'll see that the quadriceps fire for about a third of that cycle, depending on uh, some will say that the quadriceps start firing at about 12 or one o'clock and others will say they won't start until about two o'clock but from uh you know two to five or two to six you will see you know quadricep firing and if you you know suss out the math you end up getting about 200 milliseconds of quadriceps that 200 milliseconds is in the range of explosive power 
So we should expect that an increase in rate of force production should give us an increase in you know quadricep power. And that's at 90 cadence. So we go faster, then we have even less time to produce that power with our quads. Correct. So that was actually, when I was reading this, I had this speculation that could we show that professional cyclists have a faster rate of force development or that you know their activation time is lower than an amateur cyclist? And could that account for the differences in cadence? Yeah, I guess that, that certainly makes sense. That's one, one possible explanation is that they're just able to cycle their muscles on and off faster and yep. more efficiently. So uh, there's a, another uh, potential PhD research topic for, uh, for one of you out there. Yeah, the two big areas of explosive power is the ability to develop the force in a shorter amount of time. So you want to get to your maximum value in a shorter period of time, but also to continue to produce that high output as the muscle gets shorter. So these two areas are what are addressed when you work on explosive power. Uh, diving into studies, um, the first study I want to go over is just comparing explosive athletes. So I, I believe they took power lifters, um, but they included a few others. Um, just they had the generic term explosive athletes, um, and they compared them to untrained individuals. And the athletes, they were 28% stronger. Um, but the big difference was actually that the rate of force development in the first 50 milliseconds was twice as high. Just the, the way they produced force at the beginning of the of the action was significantly faster. And this could be akin to sort of, you know, if we look at 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the pedal stroke, are we losing power or are we not getting as much power as we could be getting because our muscles aren't activating as quickly as they could be? Right. And if you can get a faster activation, you can push through that area and get to the optimal part of your pedal stroke maybe a little faster. Yeah, and not just that, but your total force on the pedal increases because you've now sort of spread out the force into more, you know, a larger portion of the pedal stroke. So you should see a, a net increase in power. Right, because now now that's actually becoming more useful. Yeah, so one or one one o'clock position, say. Yeah, so I would argue that if explosive training is helpful, it would be helpful in helping us push better at twelve o'clock at one o'clock but also it would help us deactivate the muscle at the bottom of the pedal stroke. So, you know, we should see, I would say, you know, net efficiency should increase. That would be the bottom of the pedal stroke. But I would also say that your, you know, total force production, that's the top of the pedal stroke should also improve. And I don't, I didn't find any papers looking at force production or looking at power production throughout the pedal stroke you know, in changes due to an explosive power protocol. But I think that would also be a great PhD topic would be how does the power or the force production profile of a pedal stroke change after an explosive power protocol? Sounds like we could do some, uh, some studies on folks who have, you know, two-legged power meters, like, you know, aggregate their data over time, and give some people explosive training versus, you know, heavy resistance training and see see what happens. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, and the other thing, so the last thing on this study of explosive athletes versus untrained individuals was that the neural activation was 73% higher in the first 50 milliseconds. So we saw significant changes or differences in that first 50 milliseconds. And this also goes back to some of the other topics we've been talking about with the mind, the brain, the neural connections, and the importance of... So the emphasis is sort of that explosive training can help 
with these neural activation patterns and can help our our brain and our you know central nervous system engage the muscles properly. Yeah, I'd probably get some uh, some myelination or some you know to use the electric term insulation of the uh, the nerve fibers that are doing that those particular actions, and so the signal can travel a little bit faster. Yep. Um, so this next study is on runners, and so they had ten runners versus eight in the control. And they kept the total training volume between the two groups the same, but 32% of the endurance training of the control group was replaced with explosive strength training in the experimental group. So these were specifically 5K runners, and the 5K runners who were in the explosive strength training group, they improved their 5K times by 3.8%. But, Todd, this is kind of the weird part, is that there was no change in VO2 max. So, and what what level of runners were these? Uh, I think they just said well trained. Okay, so this is not this is not couch to five k, but this is also not the uh, elite Olympic level athlete. Right. right. So, I mean, that's sort of the perfect subject group, I think, for for us, for you and I. Okay, so well trained person, you said increase their time or reduce their time by almost four percent, but no change in their vo2 max so something was something interesting was happening because they they must have gotten more efficient in some way or another to be able to go faster with less or with the the same amount of oxygen utilization correct so actually their oxygen cost decreased by three percent and their energy cost decreased by five percent and the other thing that's I think it's interesting is their the volume of oxygen that they consumed during the event also decreased. So that that's the three percent oxygen cost. So the, the amount of oxygen they consumed went down by three percent. The amount of energy they used went down by five percent. And so as a result, the, these two areas can account for the four percent change in total time. And so the the authors concluded that explosive power training increased the efficiency of the running pattern. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because running is sort of ballistic in nature. Uh, you're absorbing, you know, and transmitting. For I, w- I also wonder if there's something to be said. This is a totally different tangent, but it does have to do with running efficiency. But like the um, sort of the elasticity effect, or kind of the spring effect of storing and releasing in- energy, particularly mm-hmm. like the Achilles tendon. I wonder if that changed because that would not have an oxygen or energy cost associated with it. And it's sort of free in a sense. Uh, if you're like, just like coiling and uncoiling a spring, and you're coiling it from the impact on the ground, and then releasing it. So I'm wondering. I wonder if basically that explosive training helped make those tendons you know, more springy, for lack of a better term, uh, and allowed for better you know, absorption and then return of the energy, thus in, you know contributing to the improvement in time, but without having a metabolic cost associated with it. So I, I guess I don't know enough about running, running efficiency and running economy and things like that. But I wonder if there is some analogy for the, you know, sort of continuing to push down at six o'clock and that the associated power loss. And, you know, is, is there a running analogy for that? Like, uh, do you dra- you know, do you not lift your knee up high enough or something like that, that explosive training? The other thing with explosive training and, and running is that uh, I know you said this is that runners tend to run around 100, 105 cadence. And uh, that's right in the window of being, you know, ex- an explosive-like effort for the muscles. 
that's the other thing I was saying. I think there is some research out there where um, higher running cadences will make a little more efficient. And so I wonder if that played a role. Like that's what contributed, or that was a factor in the change. Maybe explosive training had them tend towards slightly higher cadence or made them more efficient at slightly higher cadence. Yeah, I think they sh- they it would have been interesting if they had measured uh, changes in cadence. Yeah, self, like self-selected cadence, yeah. Yep. Um, and then the sort of the big kicker here is that there was no change in thigh or calf circumference for the athletes. Okay, which suggests um, that's a neural adaptation yep. or maybe primarily a neural adaptation versus a you know, muscular muscle tissue, muscle mass change in that case. Yeah, and so I, I think the value of this, though, for cyclists is, uh, you know, climbers, you don't have to worry about your you know, your muscles you know, hypertrophying or anything like that. We can maintain our, our total mass or even decrease it and still see uh, improvements. Right, and that, that goes for runners as well, right? It's carrying additional weight when you're running does yeah. not tend to help you. So, that, yes, that all, all makes sense. So looking at a cycling-specific study now, there were nine cyclists. This was sort of this paper that I'm uh, about to talk about was done and partially motivated by this running paper. So they looked at specifically, they were interested in the oxygen cost decreasing, and they were wondering if for cycling, we could see a similar oxygen cost decrease. So nine cyclists in the experimental group, nine cyclists in the control group, and for this one, they did a very similar um, total volumes the same, but uh, they replaced some of the endurance training with a 30-minute session of explosive single leg jumps. Specifically, it was three sets of 20 per leg, which um, 20 per leg is, I think, a lot. I would say closer to 10 is what I'd be more interested in. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on where you start. But yes, I think if it's, if it's your first time out of the gate, probably 20 is a lot. Yeah, and especially um, thinking about explosive type efforts, uh, you really start to run out of that explosive spring, you know, pretty early on in the efforts. And so uh, they also did three sets of high resistance sprints. So five times 30 seconds at 60 to 70 cadence with 30 seconds rest. So a, a very efficient workout, you know, 30 minutes, you just do a bunch of single leg explosive leg jumps, and then, um, you know, five high resistance sprints. And uh, specifically, the results were that the control group, they saw no change in uh, one kilometer power, uh, 4K power, or peak power, or oxygen cost. Whereas the experimental group, they saw an 8.7% increase in 1K power, 8.1% increase in 4K power, so 8 or 9% in 1K and 4K. So 4K could be sort of analogous to VO2 max. And 1K yeah, power could be maximal aerobic anaerobic capacity. Yeah, I mean that's like one in you know, like you know one and four-ish minutes, well, you know one to five minutes right there. Those yeah. two things. And then they also saw a 6.8% increase in peak power. So we're seeing you know seven, eight, nine percent increases in these anaerobic values. Um, and then the big thing that they really were trying to test was oxygen costs decreased by 3% again, just like the running study. Interesting. So, you know, I guess, the, you know, okay, so neural mechanisms possibly, but there's really no like elastic return in cycling the same way that we have it in um, running. So I think your your hypothesis about the, the muscles on and off and like reducing the, the load and the negative force on the 6 to 12 clock of the pedal stroke and maybe increase getting more positive force between, you know, 12 and three there. I think that's got to be 
one of the explanations for the reduction in oxygen cost. Yeah, so I mean, this is absolutely interesting, and I think that uh, you hit it right on the head. Really, when we're doing explosive training, we're really working on that activation and deactivation and getting it to work properly and efficiently and all you know synchronized the way we would want it to. Yeah, and that's yeah, because like I said, with the running, there's this elastic spring return action that happens, and I can see where you would maybe change those properties with some explosive training, but we don't have that in cycling. We don't have that that mechanism because it's all it's an all concentric activity. So there's got to be some other explanation for why. And the neural activation and deactivation seems as as plausible as any. Yep. So going over the oxygen cost again, um, essentially what's happening is for a given effort, so for the 4K effort, they measured the volume of oxygen that was consumed by the rider. And they had them do the same power. I, I guess it wasn't for the 4K effort. They had them do the same power and... They looked at how much oxygen was consumed and, you know, they, they just used less oxygen to get the same effort done. So, you know, it's something occurring where, you know, the, the power is applied more efficiently because you need less oxygen. We know oxygen is essential to aerobic power. So, you know, explosive power didn't change the, you know, the oxygen utilization. It actually said, we don't need as much of this to do the same thing. Right. That, that makes sense. I can, I can get behind that. So for uh, the last paper that I have is another experiment on trained cyclists, and they replaced 37% of the endurance training with explosive training. So 37%, the other paper was, um, I think, 34%, 32%. So uh, you know, somewhere around 30% of your total training load. So that's something like two hours uh, if, you, if you work out seven hours a week. So they they did explosive training instead of endurance training, and there was a control group. So both groups saw no difference in TT performance, and they didn't see a difference in maximal workload or efficiency. Um, but the control group had a drop-off in short-term performance, and the study used the term short-term performance to represent a 30-second all-out effort at 60 RPM. So unfortunately, this paper... They use 60 RPM for the, for the short-term performance. But, okay, that, that could be you know a, just a generic sprint effort um, if we're willing to extrapolate the study. But the I think the big takeaway from this one is that if you are willing to replace 37% of your endurance training with explosive strength training, you won't see a drop-off in TT performance. You won't see a drop-off in maximal workload. You won't see a decrease in efficiency. But your short-term performance also won't drop off. So the control group, their short-term performance decreased. And that's something that I notice uh, throughout the season is come August, come September, those shorter efforts, really my power is not nearly as high. My sprint power will drop 100, 200 watts at the end of the season. And I think if I were to add some explosive strength training, there's always a lull in the season at the end of July. If I did two or three weeks of explosive strength training, I bet my August sprint and my September sprint would pop back up just a little bit more. If everybody else is observing a decline and you're increasing, then what, you know it's even uh, amplified. Yep. And by doing this, and this study shows that I, I'm not risking the other attributes of my profile. You know, I'm not risking my threshold. I'm not risking my endurance performance by doing some explosive 
training to maintain my short-term performance. So yeah, so your your hard your hard effort to build up that TT capacity is not diminished. You just bolster your sprint capacity. Right. And so so that's the sort of the big takeaway here I think from these studies is we see increases in 1k power, we see increases in 4k power. You know, peak power is good. We see oxygen cost decreases, but we also see that there's no drop off in uh, TT performance. There's no drop off in thresholds. So uh, there's almost no downside to explosive power, which is why it, I think that sort of the big conclusion here is that we. Sh- I think everybody should be adding some explosive power training into their workouts, and even if even at the cost of some endurance training, we'll still see a benefit from it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you know, how how you go about that probably needs some uh, some thought. Uh, but well, I'm glad that you said that because we're going to go over some exercises, and I'm, I'm sure you have. Uh, at least a few opinions on what some good exercises could be. I do, of course. Uh, I mean, I guess my, I think the biggest thing for me is whatever exercise you're going to do, you have to really make sure that you have the technique dialed because you are applying the force, you know, at velocity. So if you don't have, just imagine, say, taking a squat, for example, if your squat form is terrible and then you try to do it fast, nothing good is going to come out of that. So for whatever that you're trying to do rapidly, you know, you got to make sure that you have the fundamentals right first, and then you can worry about moving it in. So, you know, we've talked about in our weightlifting episode that, you know, just like any other skill, weightlifting is something that you, you learn over time, you improve upon over time. And I would just uh, reiterate that in this situation as well as, Make sure that you have the fundamentals down before you go and try to lift weights really fast. Yep. And on that topic, actually, there are a few papers that suggest that explosive power isn't actually very beneficial for uh, new, untrained individuals. So they don't really see much benefit over traditional strength training or almost no benefit over traditional strength training for untrained or individuals who don't have the domain specific work. So, you know, for a cyclist who's just starting, I don't know if explosive power is really going to give you what you need. I think that the first two or three years of, of base training, of winter training, you should just be doing lots of squats. We're trying to build total muscle mass. We're trying to build this base of power and strength in your legs. And then, you know, third year, fourth year, fifth year, now we can get into the explosive training and build on that hypertrophy and also make the muscles able to fire and also deactivate quicker. Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. I mean, that makes that makes sense. And it's probably, you know, along the lines of this long-term athlete development, if you're a novice, if you're new to this, your cadence is probably lower. And over time, the capacity to sustain a higher cadence develops, and then that's going to mesh with the benefits that come from this explosive type training. Absolutely. So let me go over a few things, two uh, specific techniques in the literature. And I don't necessarily know how to apply these to a specific exercise or a specific workout, but two big ideas that are sort of spread around as explosive-like efforts. So there's the throw technique, which is the idea of you you try to throw the weight as hard as you can. And so there are a lot of studies on if you tell an athlete, say uh, you give them a workout, hey, do three sets of five, you know, 90% one rep max and explode through the effort and throw the weight upwards on your back, you know, like 
really push through it. You'll see improvements in their rate of force production, and you'll see improvements in their activation rate for the muscles. But actually, there are specific exercises where you can set up a scenario where you can essentially, you know, throw yourself. Like, for example, a vertical jump is a throw technique because you're throwing your body into the air. Um, and that helps with force activation. So that helps on the front end of the power production. And then the opposite of that is the rebound technique, which improves the speed of deactivation. So um, the best example of this is for bench press. What you do is you explode upward, bench press, you know, laying on your back, you have the weights over your chest, you're working on your pecs across your chest. You, you know, explode upwards, and what you do is you actually release the bar and you bring your hands back down to your chest and catch the bar. This would be, you know, a relatively light bar. Um, but essentially what you're doing is you're exploding through the range of motion and then as quickly as possible, retracting to the original, you know, start of the motion. And what this does is it helps your body stop pushing through sooner. So if you're doing some sort of maximal load, like we said, you push up, you finish the squat, you know, it's super heavy, uh, and you stand there and finish the, the effort. Whereas in a rebound technique, you would quickly reset. And so obviously with squats, this is very difficult because you have this weight on your back. You want to make sure you do it safely. So I wouldn't say that squats are the best way to do the rebound technique. But I know I have done um, sort of the throw technique with squats. So you can explode up. The weight will sort of lift off your back a little bit, and it's not too hard to control. You have to be uh, careful, as Todd said. But this idea of if you are looking at uh, different explosive power exercises, remember that throwing the bar can help with improving the activation speed. And then also resetting quickly can help with the deactivation speed. And that's consistent with cycling, right? It's on, on and off, on and off constantly. Yep. If you want to improve efficiency, uh, if we're looking at that deactivation speed, we should be looking at rebound-like techniques. And I would say for the legs, it is pretty tough to think, you know, to formulate some exercises that could work on this rebound. The other thing that the literature says about explosive power is that it appears intermediate loads are best. So heavy loads, they the reason that they're an issue is that it's hard to get a lot of muscle velocity at heavy loads. And two light loads don't strain the muscles sufficiently. So the, sort of the sweet spot for explosive power is some 50 to 70% of your one rep max, you know, moderate loads. So I guess the, you know, so to your point with the legs, I think the, the exercise of choice in that realm would actually be something that's called a tuck jump. Um, but I think the challenge with the legs, right, is if you do anything explosive, whether that's a squat or a leg press, or some sort of a, a hopping activity, single or double leg, either way. Particularly if you're hopping or jumping, your legs need to be extended again so you can absorb the impact when you come back down. Mm -hmm. um, like, unless you jumped up and grabbed onto a pull-up bar or something, right? Other than that, your legs have to extend so that you can come back down. Otherwise, if you're trying to land with your knees bent, uh, then you have a little bit of a problem, right? Yeah, so um, actually the best, the best exercise, and there's a reason it's actually used by most cyclists, especially track cyclists love box jumps. Box mm -hmm. jumps are, are perfect for explosive power because you need to explode, you get the throwing, and then you do have to also rebound because you got to get your legs up so that they get up 
on the box. Yep. So make sure the box is high enough that you have to pull your feet up to get it onto the box. But yeah, box jumps are probably, I mean, they're the perfect explosive power exercise for cyclists. Yeah. And that's right. So a tuck jump is basically the same idea, except you're, you're not doing the, you're not landing on the box. You're actually tucking your legs. Like you jump, you explode up and then you tuck your legs up for a second. And then you have to extend them back down again. I think the other benefit for cyclists, at least in as you know, novice, especially with the jumping stuff is we're not necessarily used to tolerating the loads of absorbing the impact the way other athletes are. So think like basketball player, volleyball player, they're jumping all the time and they're used to absorbing those loads where we're not. So the nice thing about a box jump is, you know, as Jason mentioned, we get this rebound effect as well as the sort of throwing effect built into one. But when you land on the box, your velocity is very low because you're at the peak of your jump. If you've done it right, right? You're, you're, you've slowed at the peak, you velocity is basically zero. You slowed down before you, you know, start to descend back down to the ground and hopefully the box catches you shortly thereafter. So it's actually a really low load on the body when you're decelerating and then you can step back down and repeat. So you, you know, you minimize sort of the wear and tear, you minimize the peak loads of the landing because the landing's tough on you. If you, especially if you're not used to those sorts of forces on the body. Yeah. Well, I was thinking for a, uh, for tuck jump, you could get some of the stimulus to help your bone density as well. If we want to kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. Although I think just the, you know, the jumping, the explosive load there should help. Um, but certainly the landing would be paramount in that. Sure. And of course, if you don't have a box, tuck jumping is a uh, fairly analogous exercise. So if you're sort of stuck at home and don't want to buy a, a box that can support your body weight. Um, there's really uh, there's really easy plans online though, if you go to the hardware store of how to make them for okay. like two some you know uh, some you maybe need two by a couple two by fours and some plywood or um, you know some if you do it the thick enough plywood uh, you can just do all all plywood um and usually i don't know if this applies right in this moment but i've done this before i can tell you from experience that usually if you go to a home depot or like store you can ask them to cut the wood like pretty close to the dimensions you want and they'll usually cut it for free or pretty cheap like you know, like 10 you know quarter and or 50 cents a cut or something of the like so for a couple bucks you can get all the cutting the heavy cutting done and then you're just refining if you have a drill screwdriver uh you can be pretty well there hmm. that's good to know and uh looking back at some of my old workouts with this olympic lifting coach i did box jumps at i think i did normally three feet and uh, i looked up one was three and a half feet i i know some boxes are a different length on each side so you can if it's a rectangle, you can have three different heights. So you could do mm-hmm. a two, a two and a half, and a three if you wanted to work up or you want to do, you know, two and a half, three, three and a half as well. That works. So Yeah, if you're if you're clever in your design, you can make it work uh, multiple different ways. Or if you're tall like Todd, you could have a four-foot section. Yes, and you have a lot of lumber available. Yeah. Um, so some other exercises that I thought of was um, lunge jumps could also be good. And I, I think the main benefit of lunge jumps is that it's more of a, well, one, it's it's very single leg. So I think it's important to, if you listen to our single leg cycling episode, I think training each leg individually could be, could be very beneficial. It allows you to get rid of, if, you know, say you have one leg that's stronger than the other, it allows you to isolate and sort of force that one leg to do the effort. But also it's more the 
the loading position is a little bit closer to cycling, I would say, than, than a squat. And especially because a lot of people who will drop for a squat or for a box jump will spread their knees out a lot. And we don't really get that opportunity in cycling. So it could be a little more domain specific. Yeah, that's fair. Do I get to say my favorite one or two? Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to steal your thunder here. But uh, I mean, the simplest one to me uh, that's useful, especially if you're getting into this sort of thing, just early, early on, just testing, testing out this theory a little bit is jumping rope. Um, You know, there, there obviously is some coordination involved with the rope and the jumping and that, that whole bit, but it's explosive, it's fast, but the, the height and thus the energy involved is relatively minimal. So it, it doesn't fit with this sort of like throwing paradigm. Um, it's not quite that explosive. I mean, you, you can do aggressive jump roping and maybe you're doing a double unders at that point where you're trying to get the rope to go under your feet twice with each jump. But I think it is a nice way to start to get your body acclimated to the idea of some of these explosive movements. So that's, that's one of my favorite little things to do. And then uh, I think the other exercise I always think about, uh, and this is much easier if you have access to a gym because getting the right size or set of kettlebells can be a little bit pricey, um, but would be to do kettlebell swings. So hinging from the hip and really exploding. I think that concept of throwing the weight really works because with a proper kettlebell swing, you're really not throwing the weight with your arms. You're generating a ton of force with your lower body, especially your hips and glutes. And that is driving the trunk and thus driving the arms to really swing that weight out in front of you. And so I, I like that one in terms of really developing that force at the hips. Yeah, I think that's important to emphasize with the uh, kettlebell swings is you really want to make sure you're bending the hips and then squeezing your butt to get the, the kettlebell to go up. I think a lot of people who start you know, initially, and especially if you don't have um, someone there guiding you, is to throw with the shoulders. And um, Once you feel the motion when you start using your glutes a lot, it really starts to make sense. What you're supposed to, so just just be aware that um, you know it is it is a glute exercise mostly. Yeah. It is not it is not an arm or a back exercise. Yeah, but yeah, kettlebell swings are great as well. And um, I guess I mean all the other ones that I had for power exercises, uh, explosive power exercises. Um, you could try squats. So um, I have done squats where you yeah you explode up and you allow the bar to sort of lift off your shoulders just a little bit. Um, it, it doesn't actually leave contact, but you can sort of feel the weightlessness of it, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, it, it unweights because it's still accelerating up and you've stopped moving up. Yeah. And so so that can work. You have to get the weight right, but you know, 50% one rep max is, is not a bad option. The other one is standing long jump and specifically uh, doing a few in a row. So if you have enough space, three to five uh, long jumps, like forward jumps um, can be a really good option. And I, I've i done them standing. So you just stand and you jump forward and you allow the momentum to carry you into the next jump. So you do a few of those in a row. It can be a good way to uh, sort of change what you're doing a little bit. Still uses a lot of the same muscles, but uh, you know uses them in a little different way. So it can be a fun addition. But can we go back to the squats for a second? So I'm going to throw something out there uh, sure. that I've I've seen done maybe in a little bit different context, but I think could work really well here. And are you familiar with the, the really large, heavy elastic resistance bands? Like the really yeah. big ones. The ones that look like belts. 
yes, the, yeah, they're they're massive, and so you know you can you I've seen folks do some lifting where they have one of those anchored on either side of a barbell, and then you're you know you're you're doing going through your squat with that, and you know what's interesting is you'd have to, you'd, again you have to like dial in the weight just right, but as you're reaching the top, it's as you go through the motion right, it's building resistance, so you could actually produce your power really fast and move through the range of motion at the bottom quite quickly. And then as you get to the top, hopefully you're still pushing hard, but you know, your resistance is actually increasing a bit. Hmm. So uh, I think there might be something to doing that, right? Whereas the, you know, a barbell, if the weight is fixed, if you have a barbell and the elastic resistance, you're actually going to have some fixed and then some variable resistance that's building over time. Yeah, and it, so, it will not bounce off your back because it's going to be held by the elastic band. Yeah, that's interesting. I did actually see a paper um, while I was doing this research on elastic bands versus traditional weight. And they actually showed that there was no difference in the training response to elastic bands versus, you know, essentially if you go through the range of motion with resistance, you get the same stimulus. And so they seem to think that elastic bands versus weights, there was no no real difference, but I think that in your example, it is a bit different because we are thinking about that throwing and we're also thinking about potentially, you know, rebounding could even be easier with these bands doing a rebound squat. Yeah. And I think the other thing that would happen here potentially is that you're going to think about as that leg is extending, you're probably thinking about getting maximum power down towards six versus at say three o'clock, right? Yep. That's true as well. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's all I have for explosive power. I think I'm absolutely going to be doing more explosive power moving forward because I hope, hopefully the studies showed there's not really much downside to it. We don't really see drop, you know, everyone says with strength training, oh, well, you know, I'm going to lose my threshold or, oh, my VO2 max is going to go down and I'm going to gain all this weight. Well, you know, explosive training, it doesn't make you increase muscle mass. It doesn't decrease your TT performance. Uh, the only thing it does is improve your oxygen cost and improve your, you know, short-term efforts. So there's no reason not to include it. Uh, just be careful that you don't do too much muscle damage. But if you can, uh, if you can recover well enough, it's absolutely a great thing to add to your program. Yeah, it sounds like my uh, my kettlebells will never collect dust ever again. Absolutely. Well, with with that, of course, as always, if you're enjoying listening to our podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to it. Share with your friends, maybe not your competitors, depending on uh, what type of athlete you are. And until next time, keep the rubber side down.